Hello, and welcome to the Dog Hack. A podcast series where we interview dog professionals. So today we're joined by Ross from Bug Bakes. Hi Ross. Hello, thank you very much for having me. How are you this morning? I am very well, up in sunny Scotland. How are you? Yeah, good. It's sunny down here in Manchester as well, actually. Yeah, I was joking. It's not sunny at all. Oh, is it not? <laughs> no. we, we've had our three days of sun this year. Uh, right. So Whereabouts in Scotland are you based? Uh, it's near Dundee. Uh, it's about an hour's drive from Edinburgh. But, uh, no, right. we've had an okay summer, but then from here on out it gets quite cold and quite dark. Yes. You need to get over to the western bit. I, they've got the palm trees. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give that a go. Yeah, so it's raining there today, is it? Uh, it's not raining, it's just grey, completely overcast. Just grey. It's, it's actually a really nice sunny day here. I think it might get up to 20 today really? in Manchester, well, yeah. Tropical. Tropical. <laughs> Have you been out with the dog this morning? Uh, no, not actually. No? Um, actually, our, um, so the family doesn't have a dog anymore. Okay. Um, so we had one, so growing up, uh, we, we, had, we always had one, got cats and dogs. Um, but a couple of years ago, our last one passed away, and then the family. So my mum, who did the most of the heavy lifting, to be honest, and most of the walking, uh, she's waiting until my dad retires until they get a new one. So they're just taking a couple of couple of years before getting a new one because it's a big responsibility. But um, I I can't wait until they do. I miss it so much. So they're enjoying the freedom. Yeah, yeah, they're enjoying the, the freedom. So the they've got three grown up sons that live in different parts. Well, one lives in Australia. He's a vet. Uh, he's just got a dog, actually. He's got an Australian Shepherd. The cutest nice. thing in the world, called Pip. Um, and then the other brother lives down in England. So, yeah, they're enjoying a bit of freedom and being able to go and see, see their sons. But as soon as my dad retires, they will definitely get a dog. So the the dog, the, the I'm sorry to hear that it passed away. No, that's okay. Is that last year or the year before? Uh, it was just, it was the year before now. Year before um, now. Is that Lyra the Leonberg? Lyra the Leonberg, exactly, yeah. Tell us about Lyra. So, well, I found, I, I've always loved dogs, uh, and I spent the first 10 years of my life begging my mum and dad to get a dog, and um, they would always say, we, we had cats because they're a lot easy, you know, easier to have, but the, the mum and dad would always say, oh no, you can't get a dog, because you'll never walk it, you say you'll walk it, but you never will. <laughs> um, and then uh, my brother, who's now a vet, he, my older brother, he was uh, working at the local practice to get some experience. And there was a, a spaniel that went up for, I, I can't remember why, but its owner couldn't look after it anymore. And they were urgently asking if anyone local will adopt this dog. So just to my surprise, my parents um, said, yeah, yeah, we'll take that dog, which was a, a real change of character. But then strangely, the week before we were supposed to get it, the, the, the people who owned it sold it to a, a, a game reserve up in the north of Scotland. But I think the moment that my parents had uh, agreed, yeah, we'll get a dog, they, um, they, they'd crossed a line. So then, just by complete chance, there was someone else in the village with a Leonberger. Do you know Leonbergers? Yeah, they're the, the, the huge. Yeah, yeah, the big ones, fluffy right? things. Yeah, so, so just by complete chance, someone in the village walking past had one of those, and then we stopped and spoke to them. And uh, my parents said, what kind of dog is that? And then they did a quick Google search, and there's, there's, there's very, very few breeders, but just by chance, there was one a uh, 25-minute drive away who had puppies that were um, just about ready for adoption. Uh, so we went to go and fate. see them. It was fate. And again, my parents said, yeah, well, we're just going to have a look. We're not going to, we're not going to get one. 
but uh, the moment we saw saw them, they they couldn't say no. So that was um, yeah, that must have been about thirteen years ago now. So then we got Lyra the Leonberger. When we got her, she was about the size of a cat. Just this big, fluffy, clumsy, uncoordinated thing. Um, and then in the first in the first year, she went from the size of a cat to being about nine stone. So, wow! Yeah, in pretty, a year, in a year, you could literally watch her grow. She would she would put on about a kilogram a week. And the the weirdest thing is, she would eat more food when she was this little fluffy ball than she would when she was this big, huge dog. So it's, like it's a, it's a it's a bizarre transformation they do. Yeah. But no, she was absolutely amazing, and she's actually the face of uh, of the brand of the business that I've started. So it's a nice way to remember her. So that was the family dog growing up. Do you, do you know where the name Lyra came from? Uh, I think it comes from the 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 Northern Light books. Have you read them? I, yeah. Do you know? I I was reading through the website and I thought Lyra the Leonberger. I wonder if that's from the Philip Pullman novels. Yeah. So me and my brothers we used to absolutely love those books. We would always always listen to the audiobooks in long car journeys. So I'm sure that's where the name came from. Ah, okay. Yeah, I did wonder I did that's exactly what I thought it was going to be actually. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, she was uh, she was a strange dog as well. She she wasn't your typical your typical dog. She was she was almost like a cat in a big dog's body. So she absolutely loved to be outside and she would go patrolling around the garden all the time. And they've got these big big fluffy coats. So I think I think most most indoors was too hot for them. I mean, she would obviously sleep indoors and she would come inside, but she was most comfortable out in the freezing Scottish weather. freezing cold, yeah. Um, well, with a coat she, like that, you'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. And they, um, and very, very strong-willed. So I've got, anyone that knows me knows I've got the worst sense of direction that you can possibly have. It's, right. it's, really, it's really embarrassing. But, um, so whenever I would take Lyra for a walk, she would just choose the route. And she, it was funny, she, at every single junction, she would choose whether we go left or right. And she, she each day would come up with a different route. I live in a village, so there's all these fields up by in the back of where we live. And, yeah, I would just let her take me on a, whatever route she fancied. Uh, did you ever end up actually getting home, though, from those walks? No, every time. And there was a much higher chance of us getting home from her leading me than if I was. No way. <laughs> yeah, she, was, she had a much, much better sense of direction than me. If I, and... if I did that with Bernie... <laughs> We would only ever get further and further away from her. Same as yours, he wants to be outside. So he he yeah. knows where he's getting. He's, same as yours, he knows exactly where he's going. So really if we turn, we turn the corner to come home. Yeah. He looks at you as if to say, are "You sure you want to go that way?" Yeah. He might even like stop walking, do the thing where he just freezes and looks at yeah, you. Yeah, so mine would not going home yet. <laughs> yeah, mine would do that if you if you disagreed with her route. Yeah. But she would. But if you trusted her, she would always get you either back to the car if we were. If we were at like so, there's a local beach and forest that's really nice it's called Tensmere Forest. It's the perfect place to take dogs for a walk, um, and so even there, she 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 because I can get especially in, in the woods, it's very easy to get lost because there's no point of reference. But um, yeah, if you trusted her, she would always get you back to the car. But you had to be you had to sign up for a walk as long or as little as she wanted. Yes, and how often? Because I know some of the bigger breeds, they tend not to need quite as much. Yeah, as so she, yeah, think. yeah, no, so yeah, exactly. You're right. So, so everyone always thinks of how much exercise does that dog need, but they they don't need too much. She, we, we would exercise her a lot when she was younger, um, so she could walk basically as far as 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 she or we wanted. In her older years, that it did become a problem because that's when her her mind and her body wanted different things because she she wanted to go on these long walks, but she would get puffed. Mm. So she would take a lot of breaks. 
But actually, no. So for a for a big breed, she was pretty. Um, she, she had quite a lot of endurance, actually. And so we would also do a lot of. Um, we do a lot of exercise with her. So the the Leinbergers there, I think they use them for water rescue in some parts of the world. Mountain rescue and water rescue. So they've got webbed paws or webbed toes on their paws. Right. So they're really, really good at swimming. Um, and there was a loch near where we lived that would do, it had a Newfoundland club for, for water rescue. Yes. Uh, so we would take, so they would let Leinberg, well, they'd let any dog come to that. It's just, there was mostly Newfoundlands there. So we would take her there and she would do water rescue, which was pretty fun. So you'd run it. And in fact, not many people here in Scotland want to go in the water. So I'd have to take everyone else's dogs in as well because they didn't want to get cold. Um, so you'd go in and you'd splash about and then you'd train them to come and get you. And then they turn around and you, you grab onto their back and then they'll pull you back to shore, which usually worked uh, unless the swans were about. And then you would, <laughs> she would come and rescue you and then she would start going towards the shore and then she'd veer off towards the swans. <laughs> What what was the prey drive like for Leonberg? Was was she um, quite so focused in, on? Yeah, so she, so she actually had quite a high. Usually, Leonbergers I think don't have a high prey drive. She had a higher than most, um, but she wasn't obsessed with it. So we so we we have cats and we grew up with cats and there was lots of cats in our street. So she doesn't she she's not one of the dogs that's dangerous to be around other small pets. But um, no, she she did catch a few things. Caught a pheasant in her time in her oh. sprightly youth. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. So she, but I, I think they're not supposed to have. Okay. So maybe we just got a wild one. I don't know. And the the water rescue stuff. Were you, were you doing that as a hobby, or is that something that you were you were keen to get her to actually do water? Yeah, rescue no, work? it was it was all just a hobby. It was all. Oh. So she absolutely loved swimming. Um. So one of the the very first day we got her actually. So she was this little cat sized fluffy ball, and she it was in December, so it was freezing here. The first thing we did is we opened the back, um, the back sort of sun lounge door, and she went up to a, a pot in the garden, uh, like a gardening pot, that completely frozen over, and she smashed it with her big paws, and then she climbed into it, into this freezing pool of water, and she absolutely loved water. Um, so, so we would just take her to anything swimming related. We'd t- we'd take her. Um, you say you live near a beach as well, so I'm assuming she was yeah. in the sea all the time. Yeah, she was always in the sea, and I was always made to take her in the sea. Um, and uh, and also, so in her in her final years, actually, something that I must admit, if I'm being honest, I thought I I didn't see how it could really work. I thought it was just a a money grab. Was hydrotherapy? All um, right, because because as she got old, she she got sore joints and stuff. So we signed her up for hydrotherapy, and I thought, come on, how, how can that? What can that do? But I stand corrected. It was really, really, really good for her. Um, so there was a place. It's quite a drive, about forty minutes from here. A little small business that that does that exactly hydrotherapy for dogs, and it did wonders to her. In, in when she had sore joints when she was older, she firstly she just loved it. She just loved swimming around the pool and playing in the water. But for um, when she'd get a little sort of rub of her joints afterwards, but then for a week or two weeks afterwards, she would be so so much better at getting up and getting down, and she'd be more sprightly in walk. So. Um, yeah, anyone with old dogs with sore joints, look into that. Hydrotherapy. So yeah. it just like loosened up her joints and helped her. Yeah, exactly. So, so the problem with these big ones is as so like well, any anything when it ages, it you start losing your your robustness and some of your muscle mass. So if you're one of these small Jack Russells, you can you're still going to be springy, even if you're not what you once used to be. They're still very springy because they're small little mm-hmm. dogs. But when the big giant breeds. Um, 
start losing some of their muscle mass, then their their own body weight can can work against them basically. And this common to get arthritis, and yeah, there's a, there's just a lot more stress on all of their joints. So um, it's it's quite common for them to get arthritis, and it just take being in the water just takes all the weight off basically. And I think I think that's another thing is it gets blood to areas that doesn't often get blood because when when they stiffen and seize up, they the range of motion is a lot a lot lower, so they use less of the muscles, and it's um it's, it's it, yeah it just adds up in the end. So I would highly recommend hydrotherapy. Okay, good. There's a recommendation. <laughs> uh, so you've you've had um, Lyra for thirteen, or you had Lyra for thirteen years. Mm-hmm. Were there any other dogs around as you were growing up? You said you lived in a village with the dogs around the village. Family yeah. members who had them. Yeah. So um, yeah, our cousins had dogs, and there's there's so many dogs in the village. So we grew up absolutely surrounded by them. Um, I've always absolutely loved them, and it was for that reason that I was constantly begging my parents to get one. Um, but yeah, no, I've always been surrounded by them. Always absolutely loved them, and uh, and one day I will definitely get my own. At the moment, my I have to wait until things settle and I get more of a routine with my business, and it's more um, established. Because at the moment, I just don't know where I'll be. Yeah. Um, in, in the next six to twelve months, but I'll, I'll as soon as. My life settles down and I become a, a real adult. I'll I'll get a dog myself. You'll have to make the business a dog friendly business and, and <laughs> yeah. have a, a resident. Well, it has to be, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you'll have to have one with you. Uh, yeah, but exactly. as it is at the moment, you your uh, mother and father are waiting until retirement before yeah, they get so another one. So they're getting close to that age. That that should just be a couple of years away. Um, and yeah, and with my business, it started as a, as a project and it's now growing into new things, but. Uh, it just wouldn't be fair if I got a dog now myself. Sure. Because, tell tell yeah. us about the business then, I guess, it, in that respect. How did it start? Yeah, so the business for um, for listeners, I started a business called Bug Bakes, making eco-friendly treats for dogs. And it's the first product in the UK to use insects as a protein source for dogs, which sounds very unusual. And I got the idea for it at university. So I studied law and I specialised in international and environmental law at Glasgow. And in my final year, uh, I learned a few things that were quite surprising, or at least to me. Firstly, that livestock farming is one of, if not the most environmentally damaging practices on the planet, uh, which completely shocked me because most people eat meat all the time. I, was, I had no idea it had a, a massive global impact. Uh, but what's even more shocking is that 20% of the total global impact of the meat industry can be attributed to cat and dog food. So there are million. I think there's over 500 million pet cats and dogs in the world, and they all eat a lot of meat. So during one of these classes in, in my final year of university, as well as learning those things, uh, we had to read about this paper that was published by the United Nations, and it was urging Western countries to start eating insects, which sounds strange and not like a very nice thing to most of us because we've grown up with um, negative connotations for insects. But it turns out nutritionally, the it's just animal protein. The protein from insects is just as good and it's just the same quality as any other animal. They eat um, it in places like Vietnam and... Yeah, you know, so, so they eat it in... So, exactly. There are, there are, I think, 2 billion people in the world do already eat it as part of their diet. And, I mean, they're a completely normal part of the food chain. There's lots and lots of animals that eat predominantly insects. Um, and, yeah, they're just a good... Nutritionally, they're just, they're just really healthy. But when you farm them... 
they require thousands of times less water to produce the same amount of protein as, as livestock. They, they, use, they require less land, produce much less greenhouse gases, they're much faster, you don't have to use antibiotics. So you get all of the same end nutrition as livestock, but much, much, much less environmental impact. Uh, so when I learned that, I, I came home one weekend and I told my parents about, I said, oh, that's kind of cool, have you heard about insect protein? I had no idea, but I don't see us eating it immediately because we're all quite squeamish. And then mm. it was just a passing comment from my mum saying, well, there's no reason the cats and dogs can get their protein source from that. And the moment I heard that, I thought, that's a really good idea. So I went to Google it, and nobody in the UK or Europe was making a product like that. But there were loads of articles and scientific um, papers and forums and stuff saying this is the future of, of pet food. And this is what the animals should be eating. It's totally safe for them. It's healthy for them, but much better for the planet. So this was in my final semester of my final year of university. And I, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, and I had this idea and I thought, I'm just going to give this a go. I, was, I had no money, no experience. Um, and I was very naive. But sometimes I think you have to be. Because otherwise, I think if, you, if, I, if I'd known everything you have to do, up front, then I probably would have thought, oh, I just can't do that. They had scared you but, off. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's what I did. So when I graduated, I thought, I'm going to take a year where I do my absolute best to to create a product and make a website. And at the very least, I can say I made the UK's first product that used insect protein for dogs. And even if I only sold two of the packets, then it's a talking point. Because I was always sure somebody was going to do this. It's, it's a bit right. like the electric cars of pet food. You know, it has to be the future. How long it takes to get there, I don't know. Um, but it, is, it, it, just, it just is a more efficient way of achieving the exact same thing. Um, but every month I've done it, it's kind of grown and grown. And, and people have, I've been really surprised at people's response to it. Uh, so, yeah, it's just taken on legs of its own, really. So <clears throat> initially you've started doing it with treats, but yeah. not the complete foods yeah so the reason i've done that is because um i've been doing it all by hand myself so i started with treats because yeah i mean the business really started out of a family kitchen uh i think personally or with the with the help of some slave labor from family members i've personally rolled out and set on trays about five hundred thousand of these little biscuits so it was. I've always the plan has been to get into main food, but we had to start with treats because it's done on a much smaller scale. But it's it's a good place to start to just see do dogs eat them and are are their owners willing to buy them. But we will soon be moving into main food. Oh right, so there's plans in the pipeline. Yeah, so we've got some um, some exciting announcements to make. Uh, I can't say too much, but uh, follow us on social media and you'll. Yeah, we've got some really exciting things to announce in the coming. In the coming months and we'll make sure we get all the social media handles and stuff at the end of the, the podcast for anybody who wants to give you guys a follow so the treats that you've been making they're made mm -hmm. out of insect protein yeah. <clears throat> what, what yeah. else is going into those treats so the core of the treats is we use organic oats and then we make a mash out of carrots and parsnips that's that's the the vast majority is that we made a healthy little biscuit using those ingredients and then we add cricket protein to that. And then there's also some brewer's yeast that gives them quite a nice smell. Um, but essentially it's about using as uh, a small list of ingredients and making sure that they're, where possible, local and organic certified. Because uh, that has a much less of an impact on wildlife on farms. 
Right. What does the brewer's yeast do in that? Uh, so that's a, it's a, it's both good for the gut, and it it basically gives it a nice smell. Okay, yeah, I've just not seen brewer's yeast as an in- ingredient before, but I, I've seen the carrot things and the. Yeah, it's actually quite it's quite common brewer's yeast. Um, it's just usually hidden away on. So if you look at, it's often in main food. You, right. know, you know, sometimes when you see a big list of ingredients that goes on and on, uh, you, you'll be surprised at how often brewer's yeast pops up in that. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's just it's a very common. Um, natural way to to give it a nice smell flavor, but it's also very nutritious. It's got loads of vitamins and things that are good for gut health as well. Okay, and I'd, from reading through the website in, in preparation for the podcast, I'd noticed that's the only bit that you can't get organic. So yeah, they so, were ninety three percent organic the biscuits, but the brewer's yeah. yeast was the one bit that. So there's just no such thing as it. So, so for something to be organic, actually, that's most people don't actually know what organic means. They know it's got positive word association, and they know in general um, it's a good thing, but they don't actually know the difference between something that's certified organic and not. Uh, so to be certified organic, you have to... There's something called the Soil Association in the UK. So you basically have to... They've got standards published for different ingredients of, of what you've got to... The do's and don'ts... Um, in, and then you can apply to them, and if you can demonstrate that you you fall within their their set criteria, then you can get approved to be organic. But some ingredients, like brewer's yeast, uh, there just isn't there aren't different ways of making them basically. So, it, but there are other products on the market which are uh, do have brewer's yeast or have yeasts, and they they are fully organic certified. So the part of the reason that we so we don't have an organic certification from the Soil Association because insects are so new that um, they haven't decided yet wh- whether they're going to make an organic version or whether it's going to be like brewer's yeast and you just that it gets an, exe- an exemption. Right. Um, so at the moment we we call them organic and we explain exactly why they're organic because every single ingredient that can be organic is organic certified. Um, but until there's some updates to the rules with the Soil Association, we can't be Soil Association certified. Ah, okay. So they're exempt. Is the, the, the exempt is the, yeah, is the, yeah, basically. And potentially the insect protein would also be exempt mm. before, the, it but it's so good they've be. not decided yet. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So with okay. pet food, so, um, so for better, well, not depends... There's a lot of you've got a lot more freedom on what you put and don't put on the packet with pet food, and that's why it's really important you pick a brand that you trust. So, um, so with us, we we call it organic, and we explain exactly why they're organic. As I say, because all the ingredients that can be, so ninety three percent of them are bought organic certified. But um, yeah, you have to be a bit careful with with pet food products because there's there's less less regulation to do with the you know what you can and can't say on the packet. Right. So I, what I'm really interested in is the the insect protein. When you first set up yeah. the business, how did you find and source insect protein? I can't imagine that's something you can just... Uh, no. Uh, well, it's getting easier and easier, actually. But So when I first started, there was a little reseller had just set up. So there's this big company in Canada called Entomo Farms. And they set up one of the first, and I think certainly the biggest, or at least it was back then, um, human-grade cricket farms in Western countries. So they had just set up, 
or there was a UK distributor of their stuff that were trying to, they were really trying to pitch it to, you would buy it in small amounts and you might add it to a smoothie or you might, a cricket flour that you might add to a smoothie or to a baking recipe, things like that. So I got in touch with them and they were able to supply it in the kind of volume that I was interested in. So short term, that's how I first got hold of it and that's how I learned about this farm, Entomo Farms. Yeah. This distributor actually ended up closing down quite quickly, but it put me in touch with another company in the UK called Eat Grub. Now Eat Grub are uh, they make protein bars for uh, yeah for for people who like to do a lot of exercise and they've got cricket protein in them. And they also I don't know you might have seen or some of the listeners might remember there were news articles that Sainsbury's started stocking crickets. Uh, they were like a replacement for pork scratchings, so you can get Thai sweet chili crickets and things like that. Wow. So this this company is the one who who did that eat grub. So I mean, managed to get in touch with them, so they were able to help me um, get my supplies. You know, put me in touch with the supplier, and from from there on out, they've been really helpful and put me in touch with the right people. Right. Well, that answers that. So, and the <laughs> the the crickets, the the way that they go into the treats it's a flower flower yeah so it's called cricket flower i think i think some people technically don't like that term you should say cricket powder because there's a set thing for what a flower is but that's the marketing term that gets used is cricket flower right um off the top of my head i can't remember what the difference between a flower and a powder is but uh so basically it's just 100 percent crickets they've been farmed they're dehydrated and then they're they're milled into a powder not a flower <laughs> and uh and so it's just so the powder that comes is just crickets. It's um, that's had the moisture removed, and it's, so it means it means it's very easy to add into all kind of different products. There are some companies out there that are adding it into pasta or into bread or, or you can add it to anything. Like with us, we we can we were able just to quite easily add this, this protein source into the into a biscuit recipe, um, but uh, and it's really really nutritious. So cricket flour gram for gram has got twice the protein content of beef. It's got more vitamin B12 than salmon. It's got more iron than spinach, more calcium than milk, uh, more, yeah, calcium than milk. And it's also full of fiber and lots of healthy, healthy fats. So it's really, really nutritious. And that's just specifically from crickets. There's no other, there's no other insects. It says insect based, but it's, yeah, it's so, all crickets. So at the moment, it's just all crickets I use as well. Uh, the uh, part, to be honest, partly was, was, that was the one of the few, the few insects I could get hold of at the volumes I wanted. I, I think one of the first things I did when I set up the business is I found there was a European farm selling mealworms. So I got into our mealworm flour and I got in touch with them saying, oh, I'm interested in starting this business. And then their minimum order was about 10 tons, which when you work from a family home, you can't really get 10 tons of mealworm flour sent to you. No. Um, Where would you start? <laughs> yeah, trying to envisage yeah. ten tons of mealworm flour. Yeah, and I also I had no idea um, whether the dogs would even eat it. So imagine getting ten tons and then finding out. Oh dear, this isn't and for they dogs. Wouldn't give you a, so they they wouldn't give you a sample uh, no, before so you committed. They were willing to give a sample, but they still could only do ten tons. And I was, I mean, I I I started the business with with no money and no experience, so I couldn't have bought ten tons if I'd wanted to. No. Um, but, and I would have had to have sold it pretty quickly. That 10 tons would have equated to a lot of bags of treats. How many treats do you think you'd get out of 10 tons? 
Oh, oh my god! I'd have to do the sums, but mental um, maths. Yeah, I'd, a lot. I'd need, I, I've yeah, a lot, so I can. Uh, I'm just I'm just doing the little sum. Uh, to be honest, a mountain of them. I'm a, <laughs> a Ben Nevis of exactly, of especially of treats. So you get through it much quicker um, with the main food. So once we do move into main foods, I mean, they, those are the sort of volumes that we'll have to be ordering in. Because yeah. you sell you sell it in bags of five, ten, twelve kilograms, that kind of thing. But when you're selling in fifty or two hundred gram bags of treats, then it's really a lot of a lot of multiples that you've got to sell. Sure. And what's been the reaction so far to insect based treats for dogs? What... Uh, so I've seen every reaction imaginable, but I've genuinely been quite surprised at how positive people are. So when I went to my first market, I went with an old school friend and I was really nervous because I thought, I have no idea how... I and mean, obviously family and friends are nice, or at least they're nice to your face. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't know how the, the public was going to act. But actually, a spit, so I mean, you do usually get a frown or a, or a why on earth are you doing that? But most people, once they've really had it described to them or explained to them that this is as healthy as any other protein source your dog could be eating, but it's much, much, much less uh, impactful on the environment, most of them are okay with it and especially so my the treats they look like normal biscuits it's not a bag of wings and legs and eyes if you didn't if, if the if the packet didn't say it had cricket protein in it you wouldn't know it they don't smell strange they they look quite nice and normal so i've been surprised at how open-minded people are and uh yeah no but having said that it is not everyone is that open-minded you do get some people i think it will for some people it will just take a while to get used to, but that's, I mean, that's happened time and time again in the past. Uh, not a few decades ago in sushi was, the idea of eating sushi was, I think, very frowned upon and quite disgusting in our society. And then yeah. in a very short amount of time, it's become trendy. And actually, yeah. what, what even if even if you don't eat them yourselves, what's completely normal to eat are lobsters and prawns, shrimps, crab, that kind of thing. And they're just bugs from the sea, really. Yeah. So it's all just the way it's, it's all just a, a perception thing. And what I've definitely been uh, noticed is the younger generations are really, really open-minded to it. So I think um, environmental awareness and being eco-friendly is 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 become a much, much bigger thing in the last ten years. So there's and whole... even in the last few weeks with the Extinction Rebellion and yeah, exactly. Been in the news so, a lot. I th- so I think it's actually become quite cool to 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 be interested in these things and to be open-minded. So. Uh, yeah, I've been very impressed with the, the younger younger generation that I've spoken to about how open-minded they are. And I think that was one of the reasons that I thought it was such a good idea to, to make this product for pets because there are lots of people, these same people who are open-minded, if I told them insect protein is really good for the planet, it's good for you, they might buy it in theory, but they just it's, it is hard to get out of your habits. If you spent your whole life eating burgers or your whole life eating a certain food, it's hard to make that change yourself. But with this, you're not. If the, if you see the dogs happy eating it, there's no difference to your life. You, you, it's just a different um, uh, purchase option. You know, it's just a different choice of what you buy. But you're not. You don't actually have to go out of your way really to make a big environmental difference. So I think I think selling to dogs is a good place to start with it. Yeah, I think yeah, absolutely. So you you've had a bit of a yeah. You've mostly had positive reactions. Yep. You did say that there'd been a few people who hadn't reacted so well. What's been the biggest challenges or the biggest hurdles that you've had to overcome? Uh, so the biggest hurdle usually 
is that, well, there's been a couple. One is that people will just have a gut reaction. So usually, as I say, once they've had it explained to them what we're doing and why we're doing, uh, why we're doing what we're doing, then they're on board. But some people, the moment they hear insects, it just, it, <laughs> they, they're at a point of no return and they just get almost hysterical and they just, they just won't be on board. So I think for these people, they just have to keep on hearing it. So it is starting to be in the news and the mainstream media. And the first time anyone hears it, or maybe the first three times you hear it, you're going to have that reaction. Or some people are going to have that reaction of, oh, that's really weird, I just can't get on board with this. But the more the more you see other people buying into it and the more you hear about it, the more it will just become normal. It really is no different than any other, other protein source that um, is out there in terms of you know, it's, it's nutrition. And so there's been a couple of, I would say the two, if I was to categorize two groups of people that are sometimes opposed to it, one are people, some people really say, oh, it's not natural because a wolf, a wolf doesn't eat insects, you know, that kind of argument. Yeah. It's not a natural protein source for dogs. And another group is uh, the vegan. Vegans sometimes don't like it. So with the first group, you know, the people who say it's not a natural protein source for dogs, mm. um, Oh, actually, wild dogs do eat insects, and even wolves eat insects. It, it makes, admittedly, it makes up a very small amount of their diet, but they they just do do it. However, um, a more a more relevant point is that oh, we've been feeding our pets protein sources that they wouldn't normally eat in the wild for years and years. So my I think my cats yesterday had a a tin of pate that had Atlantic tuna in it, and a, a wild cat probably wouldn't often dive into the Atlantic Ocean and haul out a 200 kilogram tuna and then start eating that however just because we're used to fish we think we think it's totally normal yeah well it's fish it's fine so we for 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 the longest time we've been feeding protein sources that are wild i mean i mean a wild jack russell is probably more likely to eat a cricket than it is a, a cow yeah but having said that it's not really relevant of what would it eat if it was out in the wild because the fact is it is it's just a, a completely suitable source of animal protein that's got all the amino acids that they need that can be easily digested and it happens to be hypoallergenic so the most common allergens in cats and dogs uh, are the most are the most common protein sources so not only does insect protein tick the boxes in terms of being totally fine and totally safe it's actually a much much lower risk um, protein source than the most commonly used ones and it makes it appropriate for those those breeds or just individual dogs who've got allergies or sensitive stomachs uh, and then with the the vegans, so actually what I found is most or all vegans I meet at markets and events are really positive and really lovely. But like anything, there's the small vocal minority online who, who is the same with anyone. It's football or whatever sport you watch, that small little percent that get angry and post things online that give everyone a bad name. But uh, some of my posts do attract quite a lot of anger from vegans, uh, which... Is weird because I would have thought yeah. if they were going to go after somebody, yeah, so it would I mean, be these big multinational yes. <laughs> duck, rabbit, chicken, yeah, beef mean, I, farmers. I share, I share the same opinion. I think of all the people to, to aim at and really spend your free time sending abuse to, a small organic uh, company that's trying to make pet ownership more sustainable isn't really the, the main target. I mean, yeah, factory farming is not great. Aim at those people. I'm, I'm a strange target. But actually, um, I mean, there's there's quite a lot of debate. So, so very few people think a cat should be on a 
a vegetarian or vegan diet. I mean, it's they're obligate carnivores. Most people think the same for dogs, although they are a bit more um, omnivorous, I suppose. I think you can get vegan dog foods and vegetarian dog foods, but most people don't think you should, you should impose your... It's not ideal for them. And most people don't think that you should impose your dietary beliefs onto a dog uh, mm. in, that, in that way. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, so yeah, I, I do get some funny comments, but, but actually, it's the having having an insect-based pet food can actually tie in quite nicely if, if you if you do a vegan diet yourself because one of the other good things about insect protein is not only does it require less feed to produce the same amount of protein compared to livestock, but the feed that they eat can be stuff that we throw away. So usually with livestock, we've got to grow crops. And in fact, more crops are grown to feed the animals we eat than people, which is crazy in a time where people are starving. But with insects, they can just eat food waste. They can eat almost anything. So even if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, a lot of the plant that you eat, a lot of the carrot, you know, the roots, the leaves and all that stuff, it just gets thrown away and it decomposes and it turns into methane, which isn't great for the environment. That could be used to feed insects, which then feed your, your pet. So it can create a circular economy. Yeah. Seems like it's a pretty foolproof way of doing things. I guess yeah. the, it sounds like the biggest challenge for you is, is having the, uh, the opportunity to actually put this case forward to people and get over that initial exactly. ugh, insect reaction that most people are likely to have. Yes, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. So it's very hard to get, because basically someone's got to be open-minded enough to just listen for 20 seconds or 30, you know, really to, to just have it explained to them. And some people go and they've already made their mind up. And whether that's because of their, their own dietary concerns or whether they're just squeamish and don't like the idea, but then they're unable to have that first little 20-second conversation. So, But as I say, I think the younger generation are much, much more open-minded. And the more that this starts appearing in, in podcasts like this and on the news... And it, it it will, like anything, it'll get resistance at the beginning, but the more it's talked about, the more it will just become normal. You need those early adopters to really exactly. come on board. Was was there a, ever a temptation to hide the fact that it was an insect-based treat? Because you were saying before that there was there's less um, legal regulation around what you must say is in pet food. Yeah. No, so actually, no, absolutely not. So I, I wouldn't have, um, I wouldn't have started a business if I didn't have something unique like insect protein. So I, I knew that I was going to get, uh, it would be a talking point and it would be controversial. But the whole point was to 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 help to do my bit and of normalizing this as a product, hopefully making a, a unique new eco friendly business and to help normalize insect protein in our society. So that's something I wanted to do from the get go. If you don't have something unique like that, then, I mean, the pet food market is enormous, but there are so many competitors. So almost almost every other brand out there, in one way or another, they say they're good for your dog. They're the best thing for your dog. Uh, but there's not very many companies at all that are saying they're good, they're the best for your dog and for the planet. So if I, if I didn't broadcast the fact that I had insect protein, then um, I would just be another treat and there wouldn't, there wouldn't be much of... A huge way to distinguish me between anything else in the in the competition. So I've always proudly proudly said the fact I've got insects, and I, I called the product bug bakes to hammer it home. <laughs> yeah. So you've always viewed it as a 
as a USP, basically. This is the, exactly, the thing yep. that stands you out from the crowd. So I've always, exactly. So I've always um, seen it as a USP, but what I've learned from going to these markets and events and from just operating for as long as I have is people are into it, but what people are really into is just a business or a brand that's committed to being environmentally friendly. So it's not specifically a, that they that they love insects, but it's more they they do like a brand that's really committed to doing what it can to to create products that have that lower your environmental impact. So in the future, it's not impossible that there could be other protein sources. So I know uh, Scottish mussels. Well, they don't, they don't have to be Scottish, of course, but uh, we've got a lot of mussel farming mussel farms up here in Scotland, and that's another really eco-friendly protein source. Um, so there are other other low-impact, eco-friendly protein sources out there. And I think that's what people are getting interested in. It's just something that will lower your environmental impact as a pet owner. Okay. That's interesting. So mussels are inv- more environmentally friendly, are they? Yes. Yeah, so, so they're, they're good for a few reasons. But um, essentially, they're, they're carbon positive, which means the whole process of farming them takes out more carbon dioxide from the environment than than they give off and they also clean the waters and it's done in a very sustainable manner so you can essentially just leave the ropes so so they're all farmed on ropes and you can essentially just put the ropes out there in the uh, in the bodies of water and the little um i can't remember the name now but whatever the word is for a baby mussel they they're they're everywhere and they just come in with the tides and they attach to the ropes and they grow themselves so it's done in a very uh, natural sustainable way and it reduces um and they clean the water surrounding them and absorb carbon dioxide in, in the shells. So, so yeah, yeah, they're a really good protein source and they're very, very healthy. Uh, and on top of all of that, they've got very little... I mean, they're, they're barely alive, really, in terms of... I mean, I don't think they've got a nervous system. Right. Or if they do, it's very, very simple. So, so you, wouldn't, you, you would not face the same... Um, Backlash. ...concerns about, yeah, about animal welfare and stuff like that because, I mean, they're... They're, they're very basic organisms. Right. Well, I've learned some... I mean, that's not dog-related at all, so... But, yeah, yeah. I, but, well, I you know can, that. I think you can already feed them... You can, you can already... You, you can feed them to your dogs. Um, at the moment, the most common uh, source of ingredients... Uh, so, so some dog foods or some dog treats, treats do have muscle muscles in them. At the moment, they come from New Zealand, which is just... Weird. I, so yeah, I think there's just a big supplier there that happens to make it into a powder and export it. So, I mean, that is quite far away. So that doesn't quite fit the eco-friendly brand. Of, um, I mean, I don't think you could get farther away. No, on the, on the planet than New Zealand. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but as an animal and as a protein source, it's great. And there are other ones as well. So um, at the moment, insects are the USP, and the and we will be committed to that. But for future products, I'm interested in exploring other eco-friendly things. Oh, that's exciting, yeah. So there, there could be other developments along yeah. the way. Yeah. Not just insects. Um, in, obviously, in keeping with your sustainable approach, you've got a relationship mm-hmm. with the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. Yeah, so that was another important thing. Um, so I was quite shocked to learn that uh, I think it's 97% of... Um, of pollinator habitat has been destroyed since the 40s and however we still rely on pollinators mostly bees but bees butterflies and things like that 
we still rely on them to pollinate one third of everything that we eat. So they are absolutely vital to the um, to our ecosystem, basically. But we're destroying their habitat. So for every bag sold, we donate some money to the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, and that's a charity that's set up to raise awareness and do what it can to help um, create new habitats for these pollinators, for the bees and the butterflies, and to uh, yeah, change hopefully undo some of the the damage that's been done. Do you know? I'd, I've not. Se- I was saying to somebody in the office the other day. I've not seen a single bumblebee this summer. Yeah, no, it, it really is quite shocking. And if you go on the Bumblebee Conservation Trust website, they'll give you a lot more information than I, I can give you now. But <coughs> it's shocking the number of species, <coughs> pardon me, the number of um, species, you know, you get lots of different species of bumblebee. Mm-hmm. And so many of them are now just extinct in certain areas of the UK. Or you'll, you'll they're so, so rare. So there, there used to be, you'd see loads of loads of bees and loads of different varieties but they're, um, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty sad, actually. However, their populations, as fast as they can go down, they can come back really quickly as well. So in places that they, that they have been doing positive change and they do plant more wildflower meadows and things like that, the populations bounce back very quickly. Oh, so that's good to know. Although it is, yeah, so although it is quite sad and it is a bit scary, it, can, it quickly could be, or relatively quickly could be fixed as long as it doesn't get taken too far. And obviously if people buy... Bug bites, they will be going yeah, well, and, doing, and doing, doing their part to help with that. Exactly, but then another thing, another part you can play yourself, if you've got any kind of outdoor space or garden, um, you can buy some wildflower seeds. Really, uh, there's endless places online, if you just Google that, that you can find them, and you can, you can put some of them in your garden, and that does make a difference. That really encourages them to, to yeah, it, it that that makes a big difference if you're if you're able to plant some wildflowers in your garden. Yeah, they they actually in Manchester about four years ago they did a big charity weekend where they went to a few different parks uh, in the south side <clears throat> of the city and just asked for volunteers and they had these big I don't know fifteen twenty kilo bags of seed and just mm-hmm. asked people to go and walk all the way through the parks and they, they'd marked off where in the park they wanted it. So they'd left like the, the fields and some of the shorter grass areas for people to come and picnic and whatnot. But in the other bits, in the corners where people were mm-hmm. less likely to go and sit, everybody was scattering seed. Um, and I think in, that's, that's really I'm cool. sure it's Rotherham, they did, do you know the verges in between the, the dual carriageway? I was just about to say that. I remember reading about that, that yeah, they were, they were lining all the verges with um, wildflowers. Apparently, it saves a lot of money on uh, maintenance costs because there's less mowing required. And, I can believe uh, it. Yeah, and and obviously it's good for pollinators. So yeah, exactly. Benefits. So yeah, so so that kind of it fits the brand as well. About how some people get a bit confused because they say, "Well, how can you be putting insects into your biscuits on one hand, but then you protect them on the other hand?" But it's 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 more about how insects can play an important role, both as a protein source and as a pollinator. Yeah. So um, the crickets that we use, they're a really good source of protein, but they, I mean, they're not pollinators. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's it's insect. They're amazing, actually. They play a really, a really incredible role in society, and they're only just or not in in the environment, and they're only just starting to figure out what other applications they can be used for. So I, I read an article quite recently. 
that said, um, I think, you know, like styrofoam plastic stuff, yeah. that's really hard to recycle or, or to break down into anything else. It's one I don't think there's a commercial method of doing it yet. Um, but bizarrely, uh, mealworms can eat it. And um, apparently, they can eat it and re- like fully break it down. So technically, even the mealworm that's just eaten the styrofoam would be completely edible. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's quite amazing. That is, yeah, I'd never heard of that. That is yeah, amazing. Cool. Um, okay, so we always ask the people who come on the podcast, mm-hmm. if you were Prime Minister, what one dog-related mm-hmm. thing would you make mandatory? Uh, if I was Prime Minister. Um, I don't know if I'd make this man. Oh, yeah, so I, I read this article, another article, about this engineer or a retired engineer in England who had invented this system of, um, he'd, I forget where, I'd have to Google to remind myself where, but there was a, a park in England where there was these special paper-based um, dog waste scoops he made and these special bins that when you put them into it, it feeds into a biodigester. And that then harvests the methane from that and that powered the lamps on the park, which wow. I thought was pretty cool. So if I was Prime Minister, I would get... Um, I'd be looking into that, and I'd get that installed in especially city-type areas because um, you could get all your, your streetlights and maybe even more energy powered, powered off dog muck. Yeah, Pretty cool. So the, the, what you would make mandatory would be, in all city parks, this, yeah. this system of methane-generated lamp yeah. power from dog waste. Wow. Yeah, basically a more, a more environmentally friendly way of dealing with dog waste, so... Because yes. actually, if, if you look into it, it's a, it's a really complicated issue of dealing with dog waste. It's not, um, you, just, you just forget when you put it in the, in the plastic bag or hopefully compostable bag. But if you put it in the bag and then you just throw it in the bin, you just don't think about it. But actually, it's not, um, if, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a complicated issue of how to, how to deal with it without either spreading uh, disease or infection and that kind of stuff. Or without it just breaking down into methane, which is very bad for the environment and just... Yeah. Um, helping global warming so that this would be a way of well a lot cleaner and a lot um, more efficient and it'd be quite cool just knowing that all the lights and maybe even more energy could be powered off of something so novel as your dog's yeah. muck well lo- luckily in hopefully within the next couple of weeks we, we've got another episode coming up with uh, a, a company called adios plastic Oh, um, I know those guys. You know them, yeah. So they do the do- yeah, they do cool. dog waste bags because even the ones that are compostable, um, yeah, yeah, contain the microplastics. That's absolutely true. Yep. So, so you have to get. Um, they'll tell you more than me, but I think it's all plant based, and yeah, it's really cool what they're doing. Well, I'll look. I'll look even more forward to that one now. <laughs> um, the other question that we ask. So that that was your mandatory one. What one thing okay. would you outlaw? If you were Prime Minister for the day? Um, well, I'm sure everyone says this, but puppy farms aren't great. It is a very um, common so, answer, yes. Puppy farms are yeah. terrible uh, things. I mean, yes, yeah, so I'd probably outlaw... I mean, I think they are doing... I think they are sort of making strides to, to clamp down there. But obviously, puppy farms... And this is more of a personal peeve, but sort of related to what I would do, is that, you know, the related to dog muck. People have got this strange habit near where I live of... Um, it's one thing if you don't bag up the, the waste, mm-hmm. but some people will just bag it up and then just hang it off a branch of a tree or, or, or off the fence. So they just leave. 
leave the poo inside the plastic and then just leave it hanging there. Like, it probably would have been better if you had just left it. Like, it would have floor. at least disappeared. Yeah, it would have at least degraded. But uh, so stricter cr- criminal penalties for people to do that. Yeah, and you know, I don't think that's specific to your area either. <laughs> I, I see that around here. People put it in a bag. And they just hang the bag at what? what I've always, I've always wondered whether they, they just forgot, maybe. Yeah. So the, I, I, my, my, my thought on this is that there's, there's two schools of poo hangers, as we'll call them. <laughs> there's, there's the ones. So the dog poos on the path, and like, I can't leave this on the path. People are going to walk yeah. down the path. Let me put it in a bag, and I'll toss it in the bush. And then as they, as they throw it, it gets caught on a branch. Ah, so that's, that's probably it. That's that's one school of thought. The other school is that they put it in the bag, put it up on the branch because they know there's no bins anywhere along the walk that they're on. Ah, so they'll collect it on the way back with the intention to collect it on the way back and either forget, end up walking, yeah. end up walking a different way, yeah, um, or or some other reason why they don't they don't get round to picking it back up again, or, or, or between when you see it. And you know they're on the walk while you're. Uh huh. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's the reason. Um, no excuse though. No excuse, and no, if I was no prime excuse. minister, tough, tough penalties for people. You would, you would outlaw that entirely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Um, that that's everything uh, we had for you today, Ross. Thank you very much for coming on. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been really good. Before we sign off, um, just to let everybody know how they can find out more about Bug Bakes. So we've got, yeah, you can follow us on our social media channels. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram, of course. You just do at Bug Bakes uh, or at Bug Bakes UK for Instagram. You should find us there. If you Google Bug Bakes, you'll see us. We should be the first hit, I hope. Uh, we've got an online store, so if you're feeling if you're feeling brave, then uh, you can try buying a bag and seeing what your dog thinks about it. And if you do, please let us know and send in any pictures. And um, uh, yeah, I think that's just about everything. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and have thank a great you very week. Much. And you. Bye. Bye.